Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to episode 276 of Greater Than Code. I'm one of your hosts, Jamie Hampton, and I'm here with my friend, Jacob Stobel. Hello, like to be here. Uh, I'm with my friend, John Sowers. Thanks, Jacob. And I'm here with our guest, Jenna Charlton. Jenna is a software tester and product owner with over a decade of experience. They've spoken at a number of dev and test conferences and are passionate about risk-based testing, building community within agile teams, developing the next generation of testers, and accessibility. When not testing, Jenna loves to go to punk rock shows and live pro wrestling events with their husband, Bob, traveling, and cats. Their favorite of which are the two that share their home, Maka and Excalibur. Welcome to the show, Jenna. <laughs> Hi, everybody. I'm excited to be here with all the J's. <laughs> We're so excited to have you. And we'll start with the question we always start with, which is, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? On a less serious note, I have a couple of superpowers. One, I discovered when I was a teenager, I can find Legally Blonde on TV any time <laughs> of day, <laughs> somewhere. It's a less valuable superpower than it used to be. But boy, was it a great superpower when, like, you would be scrolling. And I'm like, Legally Blonde, I found it. Um, <laughs> I was going to ask if one of your superpowers was cat naming, because Excalibur is very good. It's very good. I wish <laughs> I could take credit for that. <laughs> Bob is definitely the one responsible. So it's your husband's superpower, cat naming. And yours is Legally Blonde. Got it. Mine is Legally Blonde. I also can <laughs> find a way to relate anything to pro wrestling. I've seen that one in action, actually, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but no, my real superpower, or at least as far as tech goes, is that I am superhuman. Not in that I am a like supremely power, like powerful human. It's that I am deeply rooted in what is human in tech. And that's what matters to me. And the user is like my everything. Um, I'm not one of those people who nerds out about like the latest advancement, although I enjoy talking about it. What I care about and what gets me excited and gets me out of bed every day in tech is thinking about how I can solve a deeply human problem in a way that is empathetic and centers the user and what matters to them. Do you feel like you like we're always like that naturally, or do you feel like that was a skill that you like fostered over your career? I think it's who I am, but I think I had to learn how to harness it to make it useful. I am one of those people who has the negative trait of empathy. And when I say negative trait, like there's that tipping point on empathy where it goes from being a powerful, positive thing to being something that invades your life. And so I am one of those people who in the like sitting in a conference room, I can feel the temperature change and it like makes me wiggle in my seat and feel uncomfortable and get really awkward and then default to things like people pleasing, which is a terrible, terrible trait <laughs> that I fight every day against. Um, it's actually why remote work has like saved me. But I've had to learn how to take caring about people and turn it into something that's valuable and useful and delivers because we can talk about the user all day and take no action on it. And it's one thing to care about the user and to care about people. It's another thing to understand how to translate that care into something useful. And when I learned how to do that in testing, 
my career changed. And then when I learned how to translate that to product, things really started to change. That's amazing. Thank you. (laughs) I feel like so often at work, you know, I sit down at 9 a.m. and I'm like, okay, what do our users need in this feature? Or like, how could this potentially go wrong and hurt our users? And then by like 9.20, everything's off the rails, you know, (laughs) as work happens, right? And there's a million fires to put out. And it's all about like things in the weeds that if I could just get them to work, then I could go back to thinking about the user. You know what I mean? Like, how do you keep that focus? So part of it is, I don't want to say the luck, but is the benefit of where I landed. So I work for a company that does AI ML driven test automation. So I design and build experiences for myself. So I'm building for what I as a tester needed when I was testing. And let's be honest, I still test. Like I just test more from a UAT perspective. I get to build for myself, which means that I understand the need of my user. If I was building something for devs, I wouldn't even know where to begin because that's not my frame of reference. I feel like we make a mistake when we are designing things that we take for granted that we know what a user's shoes look like. But I know what my user's shoes look like because I've filled them. But I don't know what a dev's shoes look like. I don't know what an everyday low-tech user's shoes look like. I kind of do because I've worked with those users. And like I always use my grandmother as an example. She's my frame of reference. She's fairly highly skilled for being 91 years old. But you know, she is 91 years old. She didn't start using computers until 20 years ago. And at that point, she was in her 70s, you know, very, very different starting point. But I have the benefit that that's where I start. So I, I've got a leg up. But I think when we start to think about how do I build this for someone else, and that someone isn't yourself, the best place to start is by going to them. And interviewing them. And what do you need? Talk to me about what your barriers are right now. Talk to me about what hurts you today. Talk to me about what really works for you today. I always tell people that one of the most beneficial things I did when I worked for Progressive was that my users were agents. So I could reach out to them and say like, hey, I want to see your workflow. And I could do that because it was an agent, not a customer. So like they can show me that and it changed the way I would test because now I could test like them. So yeah, I don't have a great answer other than go bother them, like get a user community and go bug the heck out of them all the time. (laughs) Like, what do you need? How do you do this today? (laughs) What are your stumbling blocks? How do I remove them for you? Because they've got the answer. They just don't know it. That was really gratifying for me to listen to actually. It's not a show about me. It's a show about you. So I don't want to make it about me, but I have a talk called walking a mile in your user's shoes. And basically the, the takeaway from it is like, meet them where they are. So when I heard you say that, I was like, yes, I totally agree. (laughs) But I also learned so much from you on this because I don't remember if it's that talk or a different one, but you, you did the talk about a user experience mistake or a, a development mistake, thinking about greenhouses. 
Yes, that's the talk I'm talking about. Yeah. So <laughs> I learned so much from you in that uh-huh. talk. And I've actually referenced it a number of times, even things like when I talk to testers and talk about like misunderstandings around the size of a unit and that that may not necessarily be like global information, that that was actually siloed to the users and you guys didn't have that and had to like create a frame of reference because it was a miss. Um, So I reference that talk all the time. <laughs> I'm going to cry. There's nothing better to hear than that you helped someone learn something. So I'm so happy. <laughs> You're one of my favorite speakers. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> You're one of my favorite speakers too, which is why I invited you to come on the show. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> Big warm hugs. I feel like it's probably like, I'm actually lacking in the whole user interviewing process. I haven't really done that much Um, because usually there's like a product organization that's handling most of that, although I think it would be useful for me as a developer. But I can imagine there are pitfalls you can fall into when you're interviewing users that either force your frame of reference onto them and then they don't really know what you're talking about or you don't actually get the answer from them that shows you what their pain points are. You get what maybe they think you should build or, or something else. So like, do you have anything specifically that you do to make sure you, we find out what, what's really going on for them? Um, the first thing is preparation. So I have a list of questions and that time with that user isn't over until I've answered them. And if it turns out that I walked into that room and those questions were wrong, then we stop and time to regenerate questions because I can bias them. They can bias me. We can wind up building something totally different than we set out to do, which is fine um, if that's the direction we went, end up going. But I need to go into that time with them with that particular experience being the goal. So if I got it wrong, we stop and we start over. Now, not everybody has to do that. Some people can think faster on their feet. Part of being ADHD is like, I fall into the moment and like, don't remember like, oh, I wrote myself a note, but there's also, so I just read a Twitter thread about this today. Like I wrote myself a note, but I also have to remember to go back and read that note. So um, <laughs> all of those little things, which which are why I really hold to, I got it wrong. We're going to put a pin in this and come back. Let's schedule for two days from now or next week or whatever the appropriate amount of time is. And there have been times, and I'm really lucky because my boss is so good at interviewing users. um, So I've really gotten to learn from her. But there have been times when she'll like interview a user and then it totally turns the other direction. And she goes, well, guess we're not building this thing we said we were going to build. I'm going to call you again in six months when I'm ready to build this thing we started talking about. Because, you know, now the now the roadmap's changed. Now my plan has changed. We're going to put a pin in this because in six months, it may not be the same requirement or the same need. You know, there might be a new solution or you may have moved past that. This may be a temporary requirement. So when we're ready to do it, we'll talk again. Uh, But yeah, the biggest thing for me is preparation. I have a question about something specific you said during that. Near the beginning, you said like, they can bias me and I can bias them. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you have like any advice on identifying when that is happening. (laughs) When it feels like one of you is being sold. Mm. So like I, in early in my career, before I got into tech, I worked in sales 
you know, like everybody who doesn't have a college degree and doesn't know what they want to do with their life does. And both of my grandfathers and my father were in sales. Like I have a long line of salespeople running through my blood. If I realize that I feel like, and I have a specific way that I feel when I'm selling somebody something because like I like to win. So like you get this kind of adrenaline rush and everything. When I realize I'm feeling that, that's when I know, ooh, I'm going to bias them because I'm selling them on my idea. And it's not my job today to sell them on on my idea. And I know they're biasing me when I realize that I'm feeling like I'm purchasing something. So it's like, oh, okay. So now I'm talking to somebody who's who's selling me something. And while I want to buy their vision, I also want to make sure that it makes sense for the company because I have to balance that. Like I'm all about the user, but there's a bottom line (laughs) and we still have to make sure that's not red. (laughs) So like you're talking about a situation where like they maybe have a strong idea about what they want you to build. And so that like their whole like deal is focused on, yeah, this is the thing. This is the thing you got to do it this way because this would make my life the most amazing or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Or their use case is super, super narrow and Mm -hmm. all they're focused on is like making sure that it fits their exact use case and they don't have to make any shifts or changes so that it's more global. Cause that's a big one that you run into, especially when you're like building tools, we have to build it for the majority, but the minority oftentimes has a, a really good use case, but it's really unique to them. What's the most surprising thing you've taken away from uh, a user interview? I wouldn't say it's a surprise, but probably the most jarring thing was when I got it wrong the first time. And when I got it wrong, I was like really wrong. Like not even like the wrong side of the stadium, like a different city, (laughs) like a different stadium in a different city wrong. (laughs) It caught me off guard because I really thought that what I had read and um, what I understood about the company that I was working with, like the, the customer that I was working with. I thought I understood their business better. I thought I understood what they did and what their needs would be better. I thought I understood their user better, but I missed all of it, all of it. <laughs> so I think I think that was the most surprising because it, but it was really valuable. It was the most surprising because I was so off base, but it was probably the most valuable because it showed me how much I let my bias influence before I even like step into the conversation. Is there a difference between how you think about the user when you have your product hat on versus when you have your tester hat on? Oh, absolutely. When I have my product hat on, I have to play a balancing game because it's about everybody's needs. It's about the user's needs. It's about the business's needs. It's about the shareholders need. Well, we don't really have shareholders, but you know, the, the board's needs, the, you know, investors needs. And when I'm testing, I get to just be a tester and think about like, what do I need when I'm doing this job? Like what solves my problem and what doesn't? What's interesting about testing and not every tester is like this, but I certainly am. I mentioned that I like to win. Testing feels like winning when you find bugs. So like I get to fill that like need to win a little bit because I'm like, oh, found one. Oh, found another one. Yes, this is awesome. And I get really excited and I, you know, I don't get to be that way when I'm product person. But when I'm testing person, 
I get to be all about it. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That's so interesting because like, to me as a developer, like I get a similar feeling when I like fix bugs. I feel crappy when I find bugs, but I get that feeling when I fix them. And so it's really interesting to hear you talk about that side, like in that way. I like it. (laughs) Have I ever shared with you that I think developers are like dogs and testers are like cats? Elaborate. Let's hear it. Okay. So I, I like dogs and cats. That's not what this is about. I like dogs and cats too. So I'm, okay. I'm ready to hear. <laughs> um, dogs are very linear. So if you teach a dog to do a trick and you reward them in the right way, with the exception of a couple of breeds, for the most part, they'll, they'll do that for you on a regular basis. And dogs like to complete their task. If their job, because a lot of dogs like they need jobs. They're working animals. It's in their DNA. If their job is to go get you a beer, they're going to go get you a beer because that's their job and they want to finish their job. Cats, on the other hand, with the exception of their job of like catching things that move, for the most part, they are not task oriented. Um, and really, like a cat will let a mouse run past it if it's just not in the mood to chase it. Like it's got to be in the mood and have a prey drive and they don't all. So a cat, you can teach them a trick. And if you reward them the right way, sometimes they'll do it and sometimes they won't. Some breeds of cats are more open to doing this than others. But for the most part, cats are much more excited about experimentation. So what happens if I knock on that glass of water? Like what happens if I push on that? What happens if I walk up behind you and whack you in the back of the head? Like, it, they're not doing it because they're mean. They're doing it because the response is exciting. The reaction to their, like, input in some way is exciting to them, as opposed to finishing tasks. Because if you've ever, like, had a cat catch a mouse, they're actually sad after they've caught the mouse. The game is over. The chase is done. It's not fun to give me the mouse. It's fun to chase the mouse. So testers are a lot like that. Like the chase and the experimentation is a whole lot more fun than the completion. Um, So when I find a bug, like that's the chase. That's the good part of it. That's like, oh yeah, I tracked it down. I figured it out. I I found the recreate steps. After I found the bug, it's not as fun anymore. (laughs) So I got to find the next one because now I'm back on the hunt and now that's fun again. Dogs, on the other hand, it's like, oh, I finished the task. I'm getting my reward. I get to cross this off my list. Feels really good. You know, very different feedback. So, yeah, that's I think that's part of it is that devs love to finish things and testers love to experiment with things. I think that's really insightful. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, a, I put something that I did on my to-do list so that I could cross it off and it feels like I did something kind of person. <laughs> <laughs> I think like we're, at least I was like early in my career kind of trained to have that mindset and trained away from like, no, we're not here to like experiment with like the newest and coolest thing. We're just trying to ship features. We're just trying to fix bugs. We're just trying to like, finish the task like please do not you know be overly experimental just for the just for fun which is like an oversimplification because we you know everyone needs to be creative at some point but uh yeah i i totally agree 
Well, and, and testers do have to balance that too, because there is such a thing as overtesting. And you hit this tipping point where it becomes wasteful. And you move from, I've delivered valuable information to now I'm creating scenarios that will never happen. And like, yes, a user can do pretty incredible things when they want to, but we can only protect them from themselves to a point. You know, eventually it's like, okay, you've reached that tipping point. Now it's waste. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I remember uh, some research that came out recently that like, if you call the cat and it doesn't come, like it understands what you're asking for. And it's like, nah. (laughs) Yeah. Maka, not so much, but Excalibur, when she's sleeping, shouldn't hear you. That cat is out cold. She has zero interest in what you're saying or doing. Like nothing is going to disturb her well-earned slumber. (laughs) I'm kind of amazed how like my cat is just easily disrupted by the smallest noise when awake. And then when he's sleeping, he's dead to the world. Just like you said, like he clearly can't hear it. Or if he is, there's something switched off in his brain when he's sleeping because he's a total spaz when he's awake. That's, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think my vet could explain it better. They, he actually like walked me through like what happens in a cat's brain when they're sleeping. I don't remember why. I think we were waiting for a test to come back or something. And he was just like killing time with me. But there was like this whole like neurological thing in their brains that looks for certain inputs and like even like biochemically, like they're wired to certain sounds that are are things that they should get like awakened by and other things. It's like, yeah, that, that doesn't matter. For some reason, though, like my cats have weird things that they're really tuned into. Um, if you knock on the door, per Excalibur, we call her Per, will go bananas. Like she is furious that someone has knocked on the door. Same thing if something beeps, like microwave beep, the sound of like, if I've got uh, somebody on speakerphone and their car door opens and it beeps, she is mad. She could be dead asleep and she hears that and she is furious. But otherwise, nothing bothers her. She's out cold. <laughs> I also hate when people knock on my door, so I can relate to that. Yeah. yeah don't, come my, don't come to my door if I'm not expecting you. Yeah. yeah. Also, don't call me if I'm not expecting you. Like, <laughs> I have exactly one person I open the door for. His name is Joe, and he's like our neighborhood person who comes and like collects everyone's bottles and cans. But like, I recognize the cadence of his knock so that I can answer the door for him and not other people. <laughs> <laughs> So you said earlier that, uh, you know, working with the ADHD, uh, like you had to develop some sort of techniques for like how to handle that well in your life. Uh, Do you want to talk more about that? I don't know if I would say I handle it well, but I handle it (laughs) most of the time. Typically, I do pretty well. So I have lots and lots of alerts for myself um, because as I mentioned, like I'll write myself a note, but you still have to have the... Somebody said the name of it today and I forgot what it was, but there's a type of memory that tells you to like, hey, go look at your notes that you created for yourself because you can write the notes, but forget that the notes exist and never go look for them again. So I have lots of like alerts and alarms that tell me like, hey, go do this thing. Take your meds. Check to make sure that you have like everything you need on the grocery list. 
I have a couple of times a day that I have a reminder to go check my to-do list (laughs) because otherwise I just won't remember. I'll put the system into place and forget that the system exists. Um, And even with those helps, sometimes it'll just slip by, Um, especially if I'm busy during those alerts. Uh, But I try really hard to use those. The most effective thing for me, though, is definitely my medication. Like I was chatting about everybody before we started, and I mentioned that because of supply delays and all of the rules around how early you can refill and the rules around like not being able to transfer your script from one pharmacy to another and all that kind of stuff, I was without my medication for, see, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday because I didn't get it until midday yesterday. And I was sick. So like (laughs) too many factors at one time that like I was just not at all functional over the weekend. I forgot steps and what I was cooking. I forgot things on the grocery list. I couldn't stay awake. That was probably more being sick. But so for me, that's probably the most effective thing. Also, just as a note for those of us assigned female at birth, I discovered that ADHD symptoms get worse (laughs) as we hit 40 and up, that like all of the hormonal stuff winds up interacting with how our attention is because I couldn't figure out why my dose had to go up. I was like, I've been on it forever. Like, why, why do we have to raise the dose? And she's like, well, you know, there's some things going on and, you know, I have a feeling it's all of that like perimenopause stuff because for those who don't know, I'm like, I'll be 40 in June. Like I'm not, not a teenager anymore. Um, (laughs) So yeah, all sorts of things that I need to keep it all in balance and things that I'm learning about being in my age group and having ADHD that nobody talks about because of the assumption that ADHD is something only children have. And that ADHD is something that you grow out of. When you don't grow out of it, it just kind of changes. And that it's not just men and people who are assigned male at birth that like, there's a lot of us out there, varying genders. And uh, yeah, we got to talk about it more because a lot of us feel like we're wandering the wilderness, trying to figure out what's going on in our heads. (laughs) Yeah, I remember hearing recently that like ADHD and ADD present differently in AFAB people. And so like it goes underdiagnosed because of that. It doesn't show up in the classical symptom lists in the same way. Yeah. So the classic symptoms list symptom list was developed around prepubescent and puberty age boys. And in girls, it doesn't tend to present as not being able to sit still. Um, Although there's definitely some of that, it presents more in being like a chatty Kathy, as they say, you know, like, you know, oh, they talk all the time. So it presents differently. And as we get older and all of the other like stuff starts to factor in, um, AFAB tend to get identified instead as borderline personality disorder or bipolar as opposed to ADHD um, or even anxiety as opposed to ADHD. Because when you feel like your brain is going a mile a minute, it makes you anxious. So they give you an anti-anxiety medication instead of dealing with the fact that you feel like you can't keep up with your thoughts. 
so there's like so many different factors there. But yeah, we're we're learning a lot more about the presentation of ADHD and autism in people who are assigned females at birth. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know a ton about the the history of the diagnosis and 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 everything, but I can assume. Well, because it's <laughs> this is the society we live in that there's a, a, a giant pile of sexism going on in there, both in who is studied and 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 who they cared about succeeding in in classical schooling, um, and in the work environment, and all sorts of biases up and down the uh, hierarchy. <laughs> Absolutely, there's both the medical misogyny, but also the socialization. Because there's an expectation of girl children, quote, quote, girl children, and the behavior that girl children should display. And so we are socialized to force ourselves to sit still, even if it means like sitting on your hands. You're socialized to doodle instead of wiggling because good girls sit still. You know, so there's all of that kind of stuff that plays into it, too. Even things like, you know, if you develop a special interest, which like typically people associate with autism, but certainly has some crossover with ADHD because they're very closely related, you learn to either hide that special interest, so you just don't talk about it, or you become that person that has the weird quirky thing because ADHD girls are always quirky, right? Um, you know, they're a quirky girl. There's nothing, there's no neurodivergence there. They're just quirky. They're just different. I guess, you know, in many ways I was kind of lucky because my mom taught autistic, um, intellectually disabled, um, and other disabled early childhood. So she identified early, like kindergarten that I was probably ADHD. I was dealing with it like really early. Um, and also she had this kind of belief about raising kids without gender, but also not doing it very well. So like, I wouldn't say it was a successful thing. Um, (laughs) So let me tell you, like, we didn't have girl, quote, girl toys and boy toys. We had like building blocks and stuff like that. We weren't allowed Barbies. We also weren't allowed like Hot Wheels, like very gender neutral things. But when as a teenager, I dressed like really androgynous. I was told to put on a dress because she has a girl. So I don't know, like it (laughs) it didn't really work. But I think that a lot of that played into me being identified really early. I'm probably getting off track, but the benefit of that is that I learned a lot about it from an early age and I was able to develop systems that work for me from an early age. Most people who are assigned female at birth don't get the benefit of that. My hope is that, you know, our kids, I don't have any kids, but to the people my age that have kids, my hope is that their children are being identified earlier um, so that they are able to get those systems in place and be more successful in the long term. I'm autistic. And sometimes I think about the fact that I think that my white male privilege let me get away with some of the less great behaviors that sort of came naturally to me and did not uh, sort of force me to develop masking skills until much later in my life. So when you were talking about that, I can sort of relate to that by the opposite, that that's making a lot of sense to me, that I could see how like, 
all of these sort of societal pressures to sit still and behave weren't put on me. I was just sort of encouraged to just be a weird individual and sort of be myself, right? And like how that wasn't sort of put on me in, in places where maybe it probably should have been. So yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I have to say though, like, I think I've forgotten how to mask. COVID has definitely like killed masking for me. I have completely forgotten how to make small talk. (laughs) Yeah, me too. I just, I can't do it anymore. I've also forgotten how to fix my face. I was never great at fixing my face. Like everything I'm thinking, feeling like wears on my face, but I'm even worse at it than I used to be. (laughs) I also struggle with fixing my face, but I've actually been finding that like, I love wearing face masks in public because I can interact with someone without having to worry about what my face is doing. And like, it takes a lot of the pressure off me, I feel. I think it does. I also, so I have like resting friendly face. (laughs) (laughs) For those of you who have never met me in person, I am four foot 10. Like I'm really short. I'm also kind of wide. I'm fine with it. But like, Little ladies in the grocery store will ask me to help them reach things because I look like friendly and approachable, but I don't reach any better than they can. (laughs) Sometimes they're taller than me. Um, So face masks have made me, have allowed me to blend in more, which is really nice because I get less of like random people coming up to talk to me. People will joke that I make a friend everywhere I go because people just start talking to me. And I don't really care. I'll talk to them. That's fine. What I really laugh at is like, since I can't fix my face, I will put on like a plastered on smile and somebody will be like, you are really mad at me right now, aren't you? I'm like, no, everything's fine. I'm super okay with this. And they're like, yeah, you're furious. So we're going to stop. I can manage an angry smile without meaning it. it's interesting what you said about like people talking to you randomly because i also have a hit like i tend to be like that in the, the kind of person that people talk to randomly in general and i've been having an interesting experience recently where like i've been on testosterone for about a year and a half and I'm like finally hitting the point where like the way people perceive me in public is like different than it used to be. And like that got cut down dramatically immediately. And in a way where like people's eyes slide off of me in public, like I'm not there in a way that never used to happen to me. And like, it was really interesting realization for me to realize how much of that was like the socialization that like people think they're entitled to like a woman's time and attention mm-hmm. it's not exactly what you were talking about but it made me think of it and i've been thinking about it a lot lately <laughs> but it's true it's really true i think everyone who's perceived as a woman gets it but gets it in different ways like i tend to get it from people who feel like i'm a safe place to go to So little old ladies talk to me, little kids talk to me. Now, to be fair, bright pink hair, like little kids think I'm, I'm great. Um, Especially (laughs) like when my tattoos are showing too, they're like, the parents are usually like, okay, okay, leave them alone. (laughs) But I'm, I'm also 
no offense to anyone who identifies as male in the room. I'm also the person that men don't typically stop and talk to or even notice. Um, I remember I was taking like four boxes of donuts to my coworkers because I I think it was uh, Fat Tuesday or something. So like I was bringing in these special donuts from my favorite donut place around the corner. And I had four boxes of donuts and this guy like doesn't grab the door or anything, just like leaves me to try and push the door open with four boxes of donuts. But then granted, she was gorgeous, beautiful blonde, starts walking the other direction. He notices her right away, grabs the door and opens it for her. It's like, oh, okay. And I've had that happen quite a few times. And that's that's part of like, not to like sound dramatic here, but that's part of like the reality of living in a fat body is that you do get overlooked by others. So the little old ladies tend to tend to gravitate towards me. And then other women, men gravitate towards them. You know, and it, it I think no matter what, women experience this and people who are perceived as women, because I do identify as non-binary, but let's be honest, people in the broader world perceive me as a woman. You know, we all get it. We just get it very differently and in different ways. But I I don't I can't think of a single woman who hasn't experienced it in some way. Definitely. Yeah, I've, I've read so many rants, uh, frankly, from women who have absolutely loved masking well in public because they don't get told to smile and they, and they don't they don't present as feminine, as female, as normal. And so they, they don't fit into that category as much. And so they don't get that same attention. And, and like, I mean, I, you know, I, I look very male, so no one ever d- does that to me, but I can imagine what a relief that must be. I definitely think it is for, for some women, especially in like super public spaces. I feel like I derailed from ADHD and I want to bring it back. <laughs> I did have a question I was going to ask anyway, so I'm bringing it back to that, Um, which is that like, I feel like these conversations, like, like the conversation we're having right now about ADHD is like something that I've been seeing happening more, especially about like ADHD in adults. Um, I think it's just something that people have been talking about more the past few years in a way that's like positive. Like I know a lot of people who were like, oh, I got diagnosed recently as an adult and I started on like medication and like I never realized this was like what was making my life so hard and my life is so much easier now. And like I have several friends that are like really thriving on that like currently. And so I guess my question for you is that like as someone, this whole story you told about like being aware of this much younger and like being able to make all these coping mechanisms and things like this, like what would your advice be to someone who's like now as an adult, like now, like realizing this about themselves and like coming to grapple with it? So one of the, and I'm not one of those people, let me preface with this. I'm not one of those people who says medication is the only way. There are lots and lots of ways to manage ADHD symptoms, but I feel like the most beneficial thing you can do for yourself is to find a clinician that listens to you, that believes you, that doesn't dismiss your experiences. Because there are as many different presentations of ADHD as there are people who are ADHD. If you've met one ADHD person, you've met one ADHD person. We all have different traits. So finding somebody who is 
willing to hear you and listen to you and partner with you as opposed to try and dictate to you how to manage, how to cope is critical. Part of that is arming yourself with all the information that you can. But the other part of it is being a really, really good self-advocate. And if you aren't comfortable with that kind of self-advocacy, finding somebody that's willing to partner with you to help be your advocate. I know a lot of a lot of people in the fat community who have personal advocates for medical appointments because they feel like they're not heard when they go to the doctor. Same thing for us as people who are neurodivergent. Like we don't get heard all the time. And if you feel like your clinician isn't hearing you and because there is a real barrier to getting a new one many times, like oftentimes we're stuck with someone, finding that person that's willing to walk with you is huge. It is really easy to find yourself in a situation where you lose control of your decision-making to a provider who makes the decisions for you, but is clever enough to convince you you're making the decision yourself. That's my biggest advice is don't fall into that trap. If something feels wrong, it's wrong. If a medication doesn't work for you, it doesn't work for you. There are multiple different types of medications and classifications of them and different brands for a reason. It's because we all need something different. Like I went through Ritalin, Adderall, finally to Vyvanse because the Ritalin and Adderall weren't working for me. Adderall worked, but it raised my heart rate. Ritalin made me feel manic. My provider listened to me when I said, I feel manic, I feel out of control. And she's like, if on the lowest dose, you feel out of control, this is not a way to go. I have a friend who has been pushed off of taking stimulants because she has a history of addiction. She has a history of addiction because she's ADHD and she was self-medicating. It took four different providers to finally get to somebody who said, yeah, the stimulants are what work for you. The non-stimulant options weren't working. But she had to go and demand and demand and demand, and it was the only way to get heard. So I probably got on a tangent there, but self-advocacy, finding somebody who will work with you, and getting an advocate if you don't get heard. I think that advice will be really helpful for people. So thanks. Yeah, I'm always like very worried that I'm going to cross a line and, and upset somebody, but it just is, right? I don't know what line that would be. I feel like everything you said was just really empowering. And like, I wish someone said that to me 10 years ago, honestly. I hope it's helpful. But I've had people who haven't realized that even though they're an adult, because they're neurodivergent, that they are forever a child. Yeah. And so like their opinion, their experience doesn't matter. It's invalid. And those are the folks that sometimes get really upset when I talk about self-advocacy. That's a big personal journey to realize that like, hey, you are a grown up. You make these decisions. <laughs> You're allowed to be an adult now. In fact, you need to be an adult now. That's also very insightful, I think. Yeah. And interestingly, it ties in with, so my company had a, a, an event for Black History Month where, so we're a healthcare company. We have a lot of clinicians of color uh, and, and they put together a panel discussion about like blackness in a healthcare context. And, and literally one of the panelists was talking about like, how do you cope with, you know, there's 
still prejudice. There's still people joining medical school right now that believe that black people don't experience pain as strongly as other people. Like, how do you deal with that? And they said almost literally the same thing. You take advocates with you to your, your medical appointments so that you can have like more opinions. You can have like someone to help fight for you, someone to help make those arguments and point out things that you might not be noticing at the moment about how the provider is acting or, you know, just to give you that, that, that moral support to actually voice your like, Hey, wait, 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 this is not right. Like we, let's, let's back up and then talk about this again. So I think that 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 advice is important in, in, in so many intersections that I'm, you know, I'm glad you, I'm glad you laid it out like that. It's a really interesting conversation that I wound up having. So I've had sleep problems my whole life. And by the way, if you're ADHD and you have sleep problems, you're not alone. It's a pretty common symptom um, <laughs> to have uh, disrupted and disordered sleep, partly because our brains get bored and then we wake up. Our brains don't know how to focus on sleep. Interesting study that somebody's undertaking. But my neurologist that I see for sleep asked me to be part of a panel conversation with a team of doctors. And they basically asked me questions about being ADHD and having sleep issues. And one of the things that these doctors had never really considered is that I know enough about my own body and my own sleep to know why all of the things that they've suggested haven't worked. And one of them was like, did you try having more potassium? And I remember I just stopped myself and I said, listen, my parents have told me stories of how I wouldn't sleep as an infant. Like we're talking about somebody who was sleeping two or three hours a night as a toddler. This is not a new thing. This is not, ins this is not insomnia. This is not stress-related, stress-induced sleep loss. This is a chronic medical condition. I said, if you think that I haven't tried more potassium, having peanut butter at night, you know, turning off devices an hour before bed, not watching TV before bed, not reading before bed, using the sleep training apps, going for a sleep stuff. Like, if you think I haven't done this stuff, I don't know how to help you. Because if you think I've made it this far in my life without trying anything, we have a whole nother conversation to have. It's the same thing. I'm going to say this, and it's going to sound really hurtful to providers, but they think that like we were born yesterday. And until that changes, we just have to keep proving them wrong. I think that you won't probably, hopefully, hurt the feelings of providers who aren't like that, because my suspicion is that providers who aren't like that are like, God, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> Because they're patients too. Like, I really wonder what it's like for them to go to a doctor. Yeah, I didn't, like, I didn't want to totally derail into, like, a different conversation again. But I just want to, like, kind of note that, like, this all really resonates with me also as, like, a trans person. Because, like, I know way more about trans healthcare than doctors do. <laughs> so I go in and I say, this is what we're going to do. Because I know all about this. And my doctor, my doctor's pretty good. Like, he listens to me and... He works with me, but he says like, cool, I don't know anything about that. So sounds good. And like, it's just wild to me that like, I have to learn about all of my own healthcare to like do healthcare. <laughs> yeah. 
which I mean, that's a whole nother conversation about how important it is to like we talk about diversifying tech, which is important, but we also like have to diversify the medical care, the medical community until there are trans clinicians, until there are more black clinicians, until there are more assigned female at birth clinicians, we are going to continue to find ourselves in these situations. And we're going to continue to find ourselves in dangerous situations. I think about, so getting off track for a second, because that's what I do. I live in Cleveland. Like, well, I don't live in the city of Cleveland, but Cleveland is my nearest like metro area. So I'm like 10 minutes outside of the city. Cleveland has one of the worst infant and maternal mortality rates for Black women in the country. We also have some of the lowest numbers of Black OBGYNs in the country. There is a direct correlation there. No offense to my white men friends, but all of these white men sitting here in their ivory tower guessing at how they're going to solve this problem, while at the same time, women like Serena Williams, you know, nearly die in childbirth because they don't listen to her. It's like, so you're going to come up with these with these solutions when you're not even listening to some of the most educated and informed patients that you have. It's why there's a whole coalition of Black women in Cleveland that have started a doula organization that like they're becoming doulas to support other Black women in the city because they don't feel like the medical community is here for them. It's the exact same thing. Like until we have this this diversity that's so needed and required and reflects patients, people are going to die. Yeah. On the flip side of that, like when you do have a provider that like shares your background in that, that way, like it's so empowering. Like my new endocrinologist is trans and like the experience is just so different that I couldn't have even like fathomed how it was going to be different beforehand. <laughs> That's amazing, though. That like that transforms your care, right? Yeah, totally. But it all comes back to what I said about how I care deeply about the human. Because <laughs> this is all the human stuff. <laughs> yeah. So we like to talk about here on Greater Than Code, the human stuff. That's why I love Greater Than Code. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help myself, though. Whenever I say human stuff or think about human stuff, I, I think about human music from Rick and Morty. <laughs> that whole thing has always stuck out in my mind. <laughs> Just look up human music from Rick and Morty <laughs> and you'll get a giggle. <laughs> I think it's a great time to do reflections. What do you think? Yeah, I can start. I think there's probably a ton I'll be taking away from this. But I think what struck me the most is right at the beginning, when you were talking about your superpower, you talked about yourself as a superhuman, not superhuman, but as a just superhuman, just you're really human, like, like all of us are, but we don't think of ourselves that way. And I just love that framing of it as just that, you know, I'm, I'm here as a human and I'm, I'm leaning into it. And, um, you know, I really like thinking that way. And I'll probably start using that term. <laughs> I mean, I related really hard to the uh, forgetting how to mask situation since COVID. That's not, I don't know that's a full reflection or not, but I, I related really hard to that. I feel like 
in a way, my reflection is so general, just like, I think it's so great to like talk about stuff like this. I think that it's really important. Like, like I was kind of saying about like, we have more people like realizing things about themselves because like people are just more open about talking about this kind of topics. And I think that that's really amazing. And I think that like when people like Jenna come on shows like greater than code and like, we can provide this space to like have these kind of conversations like that to me feels like a real, um, a real privilege. And I almost can't come up with like a more specific reflection. Cause I hope people will listen to like the whole show. <laughs> <laughs> What's been really amazing is getting to talk about whatever just feels stream of consciousness in this conversation has connected a lot of dots for me, which is really neat because outside of tech, I, for folks who don't know, I'm a deacon at my church, which is also a very like human thing because I provide pastoral care to people who are in the hospital or who are homebound or who are going through crisis or in hospice care or families who have experienced a loss and all of these things interconnect the way that I care for my community, the way that I care for my broader community. Cause I have my church community. I have my tech community. I have my work community. I have my family and all of these very human spaces are the spaces that are most important to me. Um, like if you are my friend, you're my friend. And like, I'm, I am bad about phone calls and stuff, but you are, you are still somebody who's on my mind. And like, if something happens, I'm your person. Like you just, you just message me and I'm there. Um, and it all interconnects back to all of these like disparate ideas that have just coalesced in one conversation. And I love that. And that makes my heart very full. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Is there anything that you want to plug? So I have a couple of talks coming up. Inflectorcon, I am doing a risk-based testing talk. And Agile Testing Days, I am doing a workshop on test design techniques. If you came to CodeMash, it's that workshop. It's fun. Support your local testers. That's my big plug. Support your testers. <laughs> think about them as the experimental cats. I think that will be helpful for people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. This is great. Yeah, I, I, I love that last line of your reflection. That was beautiful. Oh, thank you.